Welcome to See Uncovered, a place where you'll find the stories of proven entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Ashley Henschel. Welcome to See Uncovered. Today joining me is Michael Furtick, Managing Director and Founder of Heroic Ventures and the Executive Chairman and Founder of Reputation.com. How are you? Great, Ashley. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. If you can give our listeners, let's start it off with a little background about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I used to call myself an entrepreneur and I'd like to keep calling myself that because that's been the bulk of my career. But a few years ago, I started to say that I started to sort of acknowledge, let me say this, that I was becoming more and more of an investor mm-hmm. and sort of shifted at least for a time, I don't know how long, from being an entrepreneur and founder CEO to being an investor. And they're very different jobs. I am 43. I'm almost 44. I have been in business basically for a long time, very, very long time, depending on how you cut the cake, either since I was 19 or since I was in fourth grade. And there's a story for that. And I come from a very kind of artsy family, very creative family and academic family. And my other life is in writing. I like to spend my time. Well, I don't always like to, but I kind of have to spend my time that is not in business in reading and writing nonfiction and fiction. What would you say sparked your passion for business and entrepreneurship? Well, I'll skip the funny story about fourth grade because I'm not sure that's really what you want here. Um, You know, when I was a kid, so it's now over half my lifetime ago, a major shift was underway. This was during what became known later as the dot-com bubble. So your listeners, I think, are mostly in high school, but they're going to know what that is. It was the late 90s, early 2000s, and something called a dot-com, which people would just call a company now, appeared. And there were some very interesting companies that got, that got founded at the time and some very famous flameouts as well. But the big transition that was underway was that suddenly becoming an entrepreneur was, okay, cool, okay, exciting, but more importantly, a real possibility for very young people. And and I don't mean an entrepreneur in the more traditional sense that sort of anyone who's his own or her own business owner is an entrepreneur. I mean, which could be, you know, a lawn mowing company. And if you own a lawn mowing company, you do the neighbor's lawns, you're an entrepreneur. I mean, an entrepreneur at scale. Someone's got scale in their business reach or scope or possibility. That's what we often mean by startups and entrepreneurs these days, especially in venture. Can you get scaled with a small amount of capital, a relatively small amount of capital? Okay. So suddenly it was possible for someone sort of in high school or college to do that. It was a bit more of a myth then than it became later. But uh, there were a lot of magazines that were touting what turned out to be mostly a myth at the time. But to be sure, you could be very involved in an important way as a young person in starting a company. And that transition has never really gone away. So since that time, since I was about, you know, your age, maybe actually younger, there has continued this phase shift, this paradigm shift that has not gone away. 
and it's become probably even more true over time that young people, like very young people, can start companies and have companies. And that was just happening when I was in college. It was like just, just happening right in front of me when I was in college. And I thought I was going to go to law school or go into the diplomatic corps or something like this. And I realized at the time that this wave of human history was possibly transitory. It's turned out not to be transitory, but it was possibly transitory. And I wanted to catch that wave. I wanted to be part of the life experience of that moment in human history, which was obviously so different from prior times when young people basically had to climb the corporate ladder. And many of them do still today, which is a totally fine outcome and path in life, quite marvelous in a lot of ways. But for the first time, very young people could at scale become scaled entrepreneurs more than very, 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 very exceptionally. It was becoming more accessible. And so I wanted to be part of it. And that was it. That was the driving force. I wanted to be part of that movement that has turned out to be a long lasting movement, but I didn't know that it was going to be one at the time. And it's landed me in some nice places since. So where did that take you after college? Did you go into a job or were you trying to start your own at that point? You know, I, I started a company in college. In college. But yeah, I was a junior in college. I was in my dorm room. I started with a couple of the guys uh, I knew from high school and who were, you know, very smart. And uh, we each had different strengths. They were more technical than I. I think I should say I was the least technical of the three. One very technical, one was sort of middling, and I was sort of less so. I had to become more so over time, but I was less so to start. I was the CEO. I was the business guy. I did not start the company uh, by myself. I was sort of the third guy to get involved, but quickly became an equal co-founder because they kind of said this is what we had to do. I'm talking about a period of days, not a period of months, you know. And so as these things often unfold, and then by the way, the company ended up being something very different from what we expected. So we worked for about nine months to figure out what we wanted to be. And then we did something that we would now call a pivot and we became an enterprise or a B2B company rather than a consumer company. So I was there to found that. It was um, something we decided to do together. But it was uh, it was yeah it was during college that I started this company. It was while in my junior year of college, and I remember having a big battle with my mom as to whether I should bother graduating because someone wanted to buy a company in uh, in Thanksgiving week of our senior year. The three of us got flown out to L.A. and had a buyout offer for our company, and we were like, "Oh my goodness! Like what the you know like what had just happened?" Yeah, that must have been crazy. It must have been crazy. And then we decided, we decided to turn them down, which ended up being a good decision. But, you know, it was, it was certainly at the time, I'm not sure if it was like a, a rational decision or just a bunch of chutzpah. You know, you can decide for yourself. But it was one or the other. We decided to go for it. But I remember that conversation with my mom. I was like, yeah, they want to buy the company, but we have to drop out of college. And she's like, she's like, you know, you just have to say that again more slowly so I hear you correctly. You know. <laughs> um, anyway, that was that was the time. So that's how I got started. Yeah. That's an amazing story. I, I can't imagine being a junior and balancing schoolwork as well as balancing starting a company. Well, you know, you know, uh, you'll enjoy you'll get a kick out of this. Um, that I remember it was our senior spring of college. I think it was senior spring of college, and our company had had unfolded, had gotten we had gotten funding, we had uh, figured out more of who we wanted to be and who we were. Mm-hmm. And we had an office 
uh, we had employees. And I remember we had our first like trade show. You know, you probably never been to a trade show because the times of trade shows for you were probably like during coronavirus when you just couldn't go anywhere. But like you'll you'll go to trade shows in your life if you haven't already. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, they're like job fairs, you know, but you're trying to sell your products and stuff. Yeah. We went to a trade show and and look, we were three, you know, 20-year-old kids, and we were wearing like our t-shirts that we'd made with our logo, and we like had our booth, you know. Mm-hmm. And we were you know, manning the booths ourselves. Cause like, what are you gonna do? Like it was a new, new startup. We're like 10 people. There were three of us were founders. So we're all taking shifts, you know, manning the booth. And, mm-hmm. and the booth was in the same town when we went to college in which we went to college. It was just lucky for that in that way, because we were in college in Boston and the booth was at like a trade yeah. center in Boston. And we were driving here. This is the part you're like, we were driving back and forth and we chose our shifts for the trade show based on our final schedules. So, <laughs> so we were like, it's like, Oh yeah, I'll take the morning. Cause I have a final this afternoon. Like it was that kind of situation. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was the kind of the high drama of it and the, and the image of it. You can visualize that. And what was the name of that company again? That was called true exchange. Um, true exchange. Yeah. Which was a multivariate trading engine company. That was very, very exciting. And, I think I think some of the algorithms that we developed in that company are still in use by some traders in some places, although I don't mm-hmm. think that anymore. They were as of relatively recently, but I haven't confirmed that recently. And then what led you to reputation.com? Yeah, you know, so I've started now a few companies and had some exits as a CEO, as a founder. Reputation is a very important company for me. It's become a big company. It's not a company that has yet exited. So I've been involved in this company basically since 2006. Um, wow. And uh, believe me, I'm ready for it to exit. A lot of a lot of our people, employees, and past and former people have been are ready as well. And and the good news is the company is doing well, but you know, we're just not ready. Mm-hmm. To exit. And Reputation started as a consumer business. And is now an enterprise business. But the the genesis of the business, which I think is what you're asking about, was this. It was 2005, 2006. And back then, like MySpace was such like a really big deal. Facebook was not yet huge. I realized that something was happening in the world, that people were exposing themselves in ways that were kind of like funny in the moment. But maybe they would regret like later, maybe like that tattoo you don't feel really good about when you're 45. And also people were being exposed by others in funny moments or unfunny moments. And that was kind of like this indelible mark on the internet. And then there was something else that was happening that was really affecting sort of everybody, which was that, you know, when you were traveling around the internet, you were leaving these digital footprints and trails behind you and your data was being acquired without your knowledge or permission and sold to parties you could not identify for purposes you would never be allowed to know. Mm-hmm. And there was this like this terrible, crappy bargain that you were entering into unknowingly, unwittingly, when you just turn on your phone or just turn on the internet. Yeah. And I said, look, we have to give people some way to fight back and give themselves privacy controls and so forth online. And at the time, that was like a not very cool thing to say. Like, you know, there are people who are, your generation doesn't believe this kind of stupidity, but there are people who kind of very flippantly use this pseudo crypto libertarian line, you know, information wants to be free. And, and I love that line when it 
when it applies to information that's going to make our world better. But it's not a line that kind of anyone really believes, even though they said it very flippantly when it comes to your your bank information or your private life, your your medical history or sex life. Right? It's yours and yours alone, unless there's some reason it has to be exposed. But that's not how the internet treats it. And so I had to do battle with a lot of the forces that are very very large in the internet who were uh, trumpeting this this sort of pseudo philosophy based on like just poor understanding of history that the world was had a one-way direction where your information was just not yours and screw you you're you're hosed your information is everybody else's and by the way the people who were saying this were living behind you know, 50 foot hedges in silicon valley right uh, and and flying private right but they want your data to be in their hands so I just didn't like the ethos that I thought I was seeing, and I wanted to call bullshit on it. And I did. And so I started a company that was built on that premise. And then the company grew and evolved and so forth. But that was the germ of it. The germ of it was that something was happening in the world that was awful and affecting everyone and was yet invisible to most people. Yeah. Um, and I'm not talking about like your phone number, right? Stand-up comedians can can make fun of like, you know, your phone number is public, get used to it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like your private thought process, right? You you travel around the internet and there are data brokers and thousands of, of parties that know exactly what your thought process is. They know what websites you visit. They know what messages you type to your friends and they can integrate all that information. And guess what? They know that you have certain preferences in your life that you just may want to be a topic for you and your yourself alone. And I think that freedom, wherever you come from, the left, the right, I don't care, freedom begins with the the power to explore and grow yourself the way you want to privately. So freedom begins with privacy in a lot of ways. And uh, I saw it, I knew it was true. A lot of my friends thought it was bunk, but we turned out to be right. So guess what, Ashley? (laughs) There it is. So how does it help protect us? What does it do? Well, the company that I described, the, the consumer business that I started, we sold in 2018. It's now owned by a vast cybersecurity company, a very famous brand called Norton LifeLock. And it you know, helps scrub your private information from the internet and helps give you control of how your, your information flows and so forth and so on. The company that is Reputation or Reputation.com, now called just Reputation, of which I'm still the executive chairman is, which was the mothership company that sold off the consumer business that turned out to be subsidiary. This business is an enterprise business. We focus on what would broadly be called consumer experience or customer experience for you know extremely large brands. So we basically started understanding that also companies needed to voice uh, so that they could rally real customer opinions about their products and also get the tough feedback they needed to get. So it became a quite a different business over time. So I've not been involved in consumer business for a long time, but I can tell you that that all of the brands that you know um, that are very big on the internet, all the social media brands have have been deeply affected by the battle that we f- we fought and largely won mm-hmm. for a long time, basically by ourselves. When the history of privacy is written, there'll be a few parties who will, who will be named. I think will be one of the or the ones who will get the names ringing out because we kicked ass. It sounds like it. In your opinion, what should students do to protect themselves online or young people? 
You know, I got to say, I think that young people are much more sort of savvy about this stuff than sort of every every kind of couple of years that go by. I think the kids today, so to speak, just get smarter about this than their predecessors. Like, you know, the whatever, 25-year-olds are better at it than the 27-year-olds who are better at the 29-year-olds. I'm kind of, you know, making some simplifications for the sake of illustration, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news, and the, and the other good news is that we've we sort of changed the conversation enough in enough parts of the world that your privacy controls, your your controls over where your data flows and whether you have to accept all cookies and all these different things are not just like 100x better than they were 15 years ago. They're also like 10x easier to use, right? Yeah. So, you know, they used to make it really, really hard for you to find your privacy controls at places like Facebook. And that was like extremely deliberate, in my opinion. And a lot of hand-waving saying it wasn't, but of course, I always thought it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, any any kind of person probably could cover the same inclusion, I think, quite reasonably. But their their hands have been forced, and now they have to make it easier for you. And of course, kids don't use Facebook anymore. And that's the problem. The problem is that as the sort of younger people get more and more savvy and the tools get more available and easier to use, the countervailing force, the opposite force, is that going the other way, making it harder to do these things for yourself, is that the kinds of platforms proliferate and the ways they get your data proliferate. So, you know, you're you're no longer on your browser, you're now on your phone. You're no longer in your phone's browser, you're now on an app, right? And uh, there are certain policies like Apple's that make it a lot better for privacy. But there are apps like, you know, I've, I've read about, I don't know firsthand, I don't, I've not done research myself, but I've read the way you have about TikTok and how they mine data mm-hmm. for the Chinese, apparently, whoever the Chinese are in this, in this, in this yeah. oversimplified phrase, the Chinese, they mine data about you. But I would just say this, generally speaking, just, you just have to assume that if you push it online, it's going to be there for a long time or a while. And maximizing, unless you don't want to for some specific reason, maximizing your sort of controls of your privacy settings and so forth is like at a minimum where to start. And by the way, you have a lot of people, you know, I'm sure a bunch of them, you can probably call them to your mind, mind's eye right now. There are probably people in your life who spend like 60 minutes like posing for like a single Insta photo or yeah. TikTok video. <laughs> and they spend like zero seconds, like zero minutes like looking at the privacy settings, right? And so, you know, you know, it's probably worth just spending a little bit of extra time to invert that ratio. And by the way, that'll help you control your brand as well, mm-hmm. right? Young people like your listeners are far more brand conscious and personal brand conscious than any other population in the history of humankind before. I'm not sure that's really a good thing. I think there's a lot of bad stuff that falls from that and comes out of that because there's a lot of really unhappy people who live these sunny lives online and are just miserable. Right. Um, And, you know, people who have fake marriages, people who don't mention their spouses, people who are delighted to be engaged, but then cheating on their spouse, other people, just like just human behavior, but they're living these kind of like dark versions of their sunny selves Mm -hmm. online. And so You know, I think, unfortunately, there's a kind of a disease moment that may be here to stay for a while of this personal brand management, because this is a notion that kind of everyone is going to be kind of a star of some type, or everyone's going to be kind of a social media star the way that you might have been a soccer star, NBA star, hockey star or something in the past. And 
so there's a high consciousness level about personal brand management, but I would say that a little bit more investment in substance and a little bit more investment in keeping sort of some of the defense up probably goes a, a long way for most people most of the time. It's not perfect. Let me tell you something. It's not perfect, but I think it's I think it's worth it. Has there been that you could say a tool or a skill that has contributed to your success thus far? I would say that, you know, it's it's such a good question, Ashley, because if you look at the kind of the the listicles, right? The listicles, mm-hmm. like the blogs, tweets, whatever, like, you know, the seven things that made me awesome, right? That you can also do, right? There's this all this like really dumb stuff that you read about. And it's so unbelievably dumb because you, I'm going to go on a small tangent that I'll answer your question directly. It's really dumb in some cases counterproductive because some of these ideas that you read about are diametrically opposed. I think that, for example, Elon Musk says that he makes like 500 decisions a day and and his Mm -hmm. key to success is making 500 decisions. And then Bezos, Jeff Bezos from Amazon, I think has said he makes like one decision a day, right? You know, by the way, that works for Bezos. The other one works for Musk. I don't think either of them is telling a fib. I think they're both telling the truth. I think they mean different things. I think that Musk means that like every tiny decision that makes your future better adds up cumulatively very quickly. And if you can make many, many decisions and sort of fail, mini fail fast and mini fix it fast and so forth, right? Like eat one less Dorito is like a decision maybe, right? And for Bezos, it's like make one you know, important decision a day. They might mean different things, but they're all these kind of like pieces of advice. So I do think there are a lot of paths to succeeding. But one thing that I can say has been important for me is that I am an autodidact. And so what does that mean? That means I learn things on my own religiously, right? So I learn, I'm constantly in a state of learning something new in which I'm definitely kind of the least talented, least uh, experienced least equipped person in the room. And so always in my life, I try to be in at least one kind of course of learning. Sometimes it's just academic learning or religious study or something where I am Mm -hmm. obviously the most novice person around. And I'm kind of uh, so-called breaking my teeth. Like I'm learning something really new. And that also goes for things that that are business, substantive, technical, whatever. And I make an extreme habit of it, um, I think, relative to most people. And so I think that constantly being in a state of learning, which is the kind of the, the Hollywood version of this is the learning mindset or the growth mindset, which is one of those phrases that I, don't, I think conveys something nice, but it just, I think it sort of dumbs it down. You know, I think being in a, a state of active mind development by working on difficult things that require you to be at the bottom end of a totem pole and crawl up that totem pole slowly, I think has been fruitful for me. It also keeps it fresh for me. It also keeps it exciting for me. And when I go too long without being in that kind of a phase, and there are phases when I when I just can't afford to be in that setting because I'm in execution mode for a company or trying to transact something or something like that. If I go too long, I start to miss it like rain. And I have to go back to getting. I get rushy. There's like a like a November in my soul when it's missing too long. But lastly, I always ask everyone this: if you could give a piece of advice to a teenager, or college version of yourself, what would you tell him? Well, what I try to tell everyone who's who's rather young, and I think your intended listener, not all of them will be very young, but they're they're rather young in the sense that they're probably in high school. 
I think your main objective, no matter what your long-term trajectory is, I think your listeners are going to be interested in business, right? That's why they're listening to your podcast. Your main objective is to grow twice as fast as you're supposed to grow. So your main objective is to get two years of learning into one year and just keep doing that because the compounding value of a 2x growth rate in science, in math, in history, in literature, in personal relationships, in leadership, in business, trying and failing and succeeding, getting twice the growth rate, doing twice as much as your peers, right, is so incredibly valuable 10 years later, like so incredibly valuable 10 years later, that you will be head, shoulders, and sort of waist high above your peer group and you'll break out and then they will follow you Mm -hmm. and you will be super powerful in whatever metier, whatever field you choose. And so cramming in that growth rate is exceptionally irreplaceable compared to kind of anything else you could do with your time. Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us on See Uncovered and learning a little bit about you and your story. I'm sure our listeners are going to be very excited to learn. Thank you again, and I hope you have a great day. You too, Ashley. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to See Uncovered. You can check out more at www.createeveryopportunity.org. Thanks again.